to Tea Time with Jesse. I'm your host, Jesse, and I'm here today with a very good friend of mine, old Beijing buddy, now here in Taipei, where we're filming today's episode, Terry Shea. Hey, man, it's been great to see you. It's, it's good. I mean, I was, so Terry and I hung out a ton uh, back when we were in Beijing, and we were both uh, performers of different types. I was a comedian, you're a musician. Yep. Uh, jazz musician and like like a pop star now of some way you're you're or you play for big pop stars yeah um produce. yeah produce music um uh terry was on a lot of the uh what are some of the tv shows you did um back in the mainland oh man back in the day it was like uh was a good show yeah like i'm a singer yeah you know like the mass singer yeah, yeah the mass singer shows like that yeah so and so you you'd be like in the back playing uh Trumpet. Yeah, I was in the band. I was trombone. I was a trombone. Yes, I started kind of as a session player doing that back in the day, and you know, have sort of moved up from there. Now, nice. now I'm a producer. I, I I arrange the music. I produce the music, and I work with artists directly. Nice. That's great. So it, it's really great to be able to hang out with Terry. He's one of the, the people that I was most excited to see when I came back to uh, Taiwan. And um, we're going to be drinking some oolong today. All right. So we're, this is, uh, by the time this airs, um, you can get a smell. This is the uh, roast oolong. By the time this thing airs, uh, we're going to have a Taiwan box on there with more information. But this is a roasted Alishan oolong. And... Uh, the, the oolongs here are really good. Like, this is what I was excited for when I came to Taiwan was the uh, oolongs. And, and even the, there's such a variety between, like, very lightly oxidized, completely unroasted. It's basically like sweet water and then, like, very heavy charcoal, you know, uh, roasted, yeah. like, very sort of, like, dense. This is somewhere in the middle. Um, but it's, uh, it's, been, it's been great to be able to discover the oolongs here. So What do you look for in an oolong? I, I personally... The first thing is to understand what you're drinking because if you get an oolong that is like light, you don't want to be like, this is just, it tastes kind of like sweet water. Where's <laughs> the flavor? And similarly, if you're looking for something light and you get the heavy charcoal handmade, like, you know, roasted stuff, you're like, this tastes like, you know, it's like a cigar. What's going on? So finding out what you like and where you, where you like on that spectrum is, is cool. It's almost like within oolong by itself, you have many, many different teas. Mm. So, and then personally, what I look for is like, I like for there to be a lot going on, but none of it is, none of it is like too strong. So it's like, it's sweet, but not too sweet. It's like, it got some, like some deeper flavors and a little astringency, but like not bitter, you know, mm. like, and so when I find a tea that's really like balanced like that and easy drinking, like that's kind of what I'm looking for. So, um, and then also if you can getting as close to the farmers as possible, just because you get a better deal that way. So uh, whatever you're drinking, if you can cut out as many middlemen as possible, <laughs> that's the way to do it. So. That goes with life. Again. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> life is, life is a process of cutting out middlemen. <laughs> But um, here we go. Cheers. Uh, let me take a look at that, that color. So really clear. That's another thing you want to look for is good color, but like very clear. A lot of good clarity there. So um, here we go. Cheers. The Taiwanese actually drink this first steep. Normally I would uh, wash it out with like gore or whatever, but they've mm -hmm. been saying like, you know, the, especially with the good quality stuff, you don't need yeah. to worry about that. So cheers, man. Yeah. Tea time in Taipei. Ooh. Mm. Yeah. Been good. What do you think? Wow, excellent. It's light, but it's also like there's a fruitiness to yeah. it. Yeah, it's got like fruity, a little body, and it'll uh, it'll open up and get darker, especially as yeah. we get going. So, mm. 
Um, want to talk about music and making stuff and just kind of like, especially because you're a very interesting, I always like hearing your take on making stuff in China and Asia because we're very similar in some ways, but also very different. So we're, I think we're similar in the sense that we've all had this market of performing that's been in China, Mandarin language stuff, dealing with the Chinese TV, Chinese media system, now exploring what Taiwan has to offer. Um, but also you're Chinese American, which changes everything about the way that, that the industry sees you and deals with you. That's true. Um, and so it's, uh, like what kind of made you want to do your music in Asia in the first place? Cause you grew up in the States. Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't really grow up speaking Chinese. So mm. for, and, and I mean, even though my parents are both from Hong Kong, I grew up in a much more American style household than a lot of my Chinese American peers who had parents who were maybe first generation immigrants or uh, they spoke a lot more the language and maybe had more, I wouldn't say culture access, but maybe direct uh, connection to the culture. So I felt um, that when I graduated from college, or actually, when I went to college, I really wanted to study Chinese because that was something I, I felt a little bit of, I guess you could say shame about not being able to speak Chinese as a Chinese American. Um, we would always have these dinners and, and, and my dad would have colleagues from China. You know, he's a professor and they would be like, oh, so which one of you doesn't speak Chinese? Uh, my <laughs> yeah. brother and I were both like, mm. <laughs> which um, must have not been fun at all. Yeah, I think there's a certain amount of like, I wouldn't say shit. Yeah, I guess you could say shame. Yeah, when it comes, like, when Chinese people see each other and then their, you know, yeah. their kids can't speak the language, don't really have a connection to the culture, and they're like, ah, yeah, not connected. It feels like the world is like, yeah. you know, in a couple generations, we'll right. all just be the same, you More know. people, right? Yeah, exactly. But <laughs> so, the, like, did it, um, was it intimidating to look at the idea of studying Chinese, though, as a, as a Chinese-American and starting kind of from scratch? I think for me, it was, I mean, I had a couple of years of Chinese school when I was like a little kid, and I had, so I knew... How to speak some very basic phrases, you know, I, I can ask, yeah, go to the bathroom, and yeah, yeah. Um, but for me, the intimidation part was when you when you start learning Chinese and you go to the country, you know, I think this is with like a lot of Asian countries too. People look at you like you should be able to speak the language. Yeah. Their expectations for you are very different than me. Right. So when you go there. They look at you and they think, uh, oh, yeah, you speak great Chinese. Yeah, yeah. Or, or, what or you go know? like, ni hao. They're like, right. you're doing this, you know. Right. Or, you can, or you can be, I had a joke on that, which is like, I've been here nine years, but like, I don't know if my Chinese has gotten any better because <laughs> people said it was good the first day. <laughs> like, you know, I landed yeah. like, ni hao. And now I'm like, hey, you that thing, don't you find that name, man? Like, it's the same reaction. Drop some. Yeah. Knowledge. Well, we had, we had, uh, I did another podcast with a, um, Australian Chinese comedian, Annie Louie. Uh, she was performing here and she was like being in Asia and, you know, in China or Taiwan or Hong Kong is like, they think she's slow. They yeah. think like, she's like, she's speaking and doing her best, but like right. the accent, something's a little bit off and they're like, is she yeah. all right? right, and, right, right. Like, and it feels, it feels crappy, honestly, for me, because it was like having that support was such a big thing to help get me through that intimidation to learn the language. So that was what I was saying is how did you get through that learning process without that support? 
Well, I think I think the big part of learning any language, no matter what you look like or what you, um, what background you come from, is that you have to be willing to be not afraid to make mistakes. Yeah, and just screw up all the time. And I think that uh, when you're in that environment as a Chinese American in China, they're looking at you like, "Who is this idiot bumbling?" <laughs> that is easy for you to. It's easy for you to forget that that's a rule that you have to be, yeah, you know, willing to break. Everybody had to make the mistakes, yeah, regardless. Exactly. So I think for me, my goal was to as quickly as possible to become hypersensitive to the people that I was hanging around, especially the locals and what their dialects were, what words they were using, what phrasing, what phrases they were using, how they spoke, their mannerisms. Because yeah. your, your, your goal for yourself was always to get to a higher place because you had to, or else you'd always right. have to deal with the, the right. junk. So like that little stuff about like with like getting off of the textbook language and into the real life language yeah. was even more important. Yeah. yeah. So that's sort of how I fell into the music scene was, um, you know, when I was doing the language study program in Beijing, I ended up meeting a bunch of musicians and they were local musicians, but also a few Chinese American, um, thank you, uh, a few Chinese American and American and Italian, and, you know, European musicians, foreign musicians. And they were all living together and working together in Beijing. And I thought, not only did I feel like it was a great opportunity to keep playing music, but uh, that it was, I was getting like a local experience, yeah. you know, from what people were living, like how they were living. And then also the language side, just mm. being able to pick up on a lot of their yeah. manners. So for the first couple of years I was in Beijing, or I would say the entire time that I was in Beijing, I really like sp spoke like a kind of, yeah. Dongbei, yeah. You, know? you I remember always speaking to you and it was uh you you had this sort of like kind of low growly <laughs> it was kind of like that. The code switching thing is like when I go back to China, I within you know I mean when I moved to Taiwan it was immediate uh how different I sounded from everybody here. Yeah. And that's like a, there's a, there's a little bit of a political thing there too. So I, I was hyper aware that people were noticing me for my Dongbei accent. Yeah. When I, when I got to, you, but do you feel like that's kind of a graduation from the, the, the mainland people seeing you as yeah. a Chinese American right. and now the Taiwanese people are seeing you as a Dongbei Well, yeah, it's <laughs> do you feel like you've moved exactly. up or sideways or? Yeah. I don't know if it's sideways or something like that. <laughs> It might be a little bit sideways, it may be a little up, maybe a little down. I don't know. Yeah, the, the thing is, people would always tell me, like, you know, they would say, like, what people always ask me about my accent and Americans who don't know enough Chinese to know how my accent sounds. Right. And the way I always describe it is that the Beijingers can tell I'm not from Beijing, but they don't know where I'm from. Yeah. And then the people from outside of Beijing think I'm from Beijing. Right. And so I went, did a little stand-up set here in, in Mandarin, and I came on, I was like, 
Like, you know, like, you know, I'm just make sure you know, like, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, because right, if they right. just hear the accent, they're like, that guy sounds like he's from Beijing. Right, right. And of course, the, the, no one's confused in the comedy show. Right. Um, <laughs> but on the phone, like I did have these, these times when, um, in China, when I would like call like a cab driver or whatever and be right. like, well, what's that jet law? Like, you know, what's that what What's that Charlie? And he's looking around, like looking straight through me. Like, Where are you? Where? I'm like, what's that Charlie? He's like, oh, <laughs> like, oh, that was actually me. Yeah. Um, so the, the accent is, um, I think people don't recognize it just here at Mandarin. And they don't right. recognize how people really use those accents to figure out where you're from and, yeah. and what you think, right. you know, based off of that. I so. mean, here it's, it's Goyu, you know, there's yeah. some very strong differences in, in the language and mm. person from the you know. Mm. <clears throat> so there's the whole Taiyu thing, too, yeah. you know, people. So it's, yeah, I, I felt a very strong compulsion to change my accent from the Dongbei. Mm. And I, I think part of it was subconscious, but also part of it was... Part of it was like I just also again I didn't want to stick out yeah. so I very quickly like switched to yeah to this Taiwanese uh, current dialect yeah but then when I go back to China you know <laughs> they're like oh you're Taiwanese I, now like, yeah, yeah. I, all my friends from Beijing they they're like wow man like this is weird like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. like this and so after about two weeks being in in China, it starts to like slide back. It goes back to the mainland style. Yeah. And so this is kind of like a weird, like code switching thing. You know, like black people talk a lot about mm. code switching, like using their, you know, no. comfortable dialect yeah. with friends versus like with people yeah. who they're not familiar with, particularly with like white people. Or yeah. And for, for me, it's, it's kind of the same thing where depending on where I am, yeah. Taiwan or China, it's like my accent kind of shifts. Yeah, it was one of those things, the code switching. It's actually a really interesting comparison to black culture because I remember uh, this last uh, football season, Deion Sanders was the, the coach of Colorado, yeah. and people were talking about his interviews, and, and one person said it's like, he's just replying to the questions, he's just not code switching. Right. He's answering the questions as if you would be talking to other black people. Yeah. And, and it's weird for somebody to be at a podium and refuse to code switch. Yeah. Um, and even now, like coming back into English, like as an American who lived in China for a long time, I'm wondering, like, do I have to code switch and play into Americans concept of when I mention I lived in China and I do comedy, their number one thing is, oh, I must, you must immediately be telling me stories about how you were censored. Right. Like they're not there to hear anything right. else. Right. And I'm like, do I need to play into that? Cause I do have stories about problems, but like, that's not the whole of the identity. It's like, that's not what I would talk about first. Right. Um, do I refuse to acknowledge that or do I just like, you know, do I refuse to code switch and to speak in English, but I'm going to talk about what I wanted to talk about. So I'm going to talk about the tea. I'm going to talk about the comedy scene, you know? Well, I mean, I think it's just a, this myopic view that tends to get, tends to obstruct people's understanding of a culture that somehow if there is this way of living that completely goes against everything that you know this you know what they consider this you know You're going against the narrative the narrative yeah then somehow everything that people do must be going against yeah them. it, it makes it I, mean, I explained it once it was like it's like if when it, when you do stuff that goes against that cultural narrative it kind of creates this almost like fight or flight sort of thing in people where they're like Either I admit to myself there's a really big world out there and I know very little about it, or or you must be wrong, right. <laughs> you know. And so, right. and usually 
I don't want to say everybody, but usually people tend to be defensive about that. And that's one of the reasons why if I get like hater comments on the internet about China, I'm like, you know, there's only so much you can do. Like it's not, they're not actually necessarily hating on me. What I've done is kind of like blown up the narrative about way, the way they look about China's and Chinese yeah. culture. And even with tea, like we had one guy who was like, really, he's like, yeah, aged tea. That sounds like a scam. And I'm like, and, and if you go to China, there are scams with HT. Like, there are people who are doing fake HT, but right. the concept of aging tea is like, that's like saying wine is a scam. Yeah. Like, you know, nobody would say wine is a scam because it was aged or whiskey. Right. But like, but like, all of a sudden, it just for some reason is so offensive to think of tea being aged that way because it's like, oh, this whole other world, and I don't get the good tea now because I'm not willing to pay for it. <laughs> you know, like cognitive dissonance. Yeah. Like, so, yeah. So, so anyway, so you were in locally with the Chinese music, jazz, pop scene. What was it like? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, uh, to be a musician in Beijing, I mean, at the time when I first moved there to be a, to be a jazz musician, I mean, it's pretty much like a life that you would have as a musician anywhere else, which may be surprising to some people, actually. You know, if you go to a place like New York where you're a jazz musician, um, you're doing a lot of things that are not jazz, like you're teaching, you're yeah. doing a lot of, you know, trying to take as much corporate gigs as possible, mm -hmm. you know, and just so that you don't have to have the pain of like playing music that you don't want to play. Yeah. Um, and to play the gigs that you do want to play. So like most people would rather play a corporate jazz gig than like, you know, play type of music or like get a day job that they yeah, want to do. Exactly. So, or, I mean, you know, you just have to do something to to make up the difference. So a lot of people do teaching, like teach mm -hmm. music. There's a there's a, a music academy in Tongzhou called Shenai Yue Shui Yuan. And so a lot of my, my fellow jazz musicians taught there. Mm -hmm. You know, I taught at afternoon jazz programs at one of the international schools in Beijing, yeah. International School of Beijing. Yeah. Yeah. Shen Yi, you know, and, and uh, yes, a myriad, yeah, a myriad of, you know, kind of piecemeal programs that you can make yeah. to put together to make those yeah i mean i, I remember my first year of doing chinese comedy full-time did i tell you about the seven-year-old's birthday party i did the funny so the like there was this i got a call they're like somebody has a birthday party like show up at this restaurant and it turned out to be a seven-year-old whose parents i guess she liked listening to the radio and and so they were like that's a talk show, right? And in Chinese, the word for stand-up is chill. So they're like, my seven-year-old likes talk show. And so they hired me as a stand-up comedian. And the other thing is they didn't have a private room. It was just in the restaurant. Like, it was just like, they were one table amongst other people and, then I, and no mic or anything. I just, I guess I'm just like doing my bits for this table. Like I showed up as like a bad waiter who was like <laughs> trying to like make people laugh to get better tips. And I, I, I did, and I'm like, I'm going to eat it. And I ate it for 12 minutes and I bounced and I probably got a bigger tip than the waiter. So, there you go. There you go. <laughs> but like, you know, that's, that's the sort of gig you got to take in the beginning. Right. Um, and then at that time, what did, what did you think it would be like when you made it in the scene? And was it actually different from when you actually grew in and became a more like a bigger member of the scene? Well, I mean, I think there's a difference between being a jazz musician and what I do now, which is producing and working in the pop music industry mm -hmm. in China and Taiwan. And for, for a jazz musician, I was really, you know, your kind of goal is just to kind of make it, you know, you uh, as playing your own music. You know, if you can 
you can be, you know, a couple different routes. You can be a sideman, which means that you play for other people. And there's not that really that many jazz musicians in Beijing. So we're kind of a small, isolated community, um, and but very integrated with local musicians and mm. foreign musicians together. So the foreign musicians all speak fantastic Chinese, and you know, and so we all the lingua franca in yeah. the jazz, you know, community there is Chinese. Mm. Um, so that that's a really, you know, making it as a jazz musician there kind of means being able to have like a regular gig playing your own music. Yeah, and just kind of, you know, yeah. making it yeah. day after day. Because jazz is so improvisational; it's like a form of communication already like do you feel like like do you feel like having the language skill to be able to communicate better with people in person help you communicate better through the music or was it really like hey if we know jazz you know jazz and you actually don't need to speak the second language yeah i think i think it's a little bit well obviously like communication verbal communication is really important for like being able to get across your ideas and how you want to be able to play the music in the planning stages because even though jazz is improvisational, it's not purely improvisational. Sure. There are still like common denominators musically or verbally that you have to be able to tell somebody like, oh, we're going to the bridge, you know, we're going mm -hmm. to the B section, let's go backgrounds, you know, play the head. These are kind of basic mm -hmm. musical concepts that we want to be able to communicate to other people. And so, yeah, obviously being able to speak Chinese will better be able to help you do that. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, what you said is correct, which is that, and one of the beautiful things about playing music is that when two people from different cultures understand the same piece of music, even though they may have different, even though their, their cultural lens may affect the way that they hear the piece, mm -hmm. they can still come to like a very, very close mutual understanding about how to play that song together mm -hmm. um, without needing you know yeah. a language in yeah. Yeah, without needing yeah. another language do you feel almost like because because jazz is like uh, originally you yeah. know was uh created by black americans and like do you feel like in some way like as a chinese american and them as maybe chinese or italian or whatever because is almost everybody coming to this almost as a second culture because of that creative yeah, in like so. where it started and I think it's it's really interesting that in China, you know, you, you had the you had a ban on Western music from you know forty nine until nineteen seventy eight, really when yeah. when Mao uh, sorry when the end of the Cultural Revolution happened, and they officially kind of opened up began opening up the country, and so every other country in the world, you know, that has been directly. Uh, links to the United States in some way uh, has had direct access to jazz music for those like 30 years or yeah. 30 some odd years but China did not yeah it broke for a yeah. while and so hearing so coming back to the table in 1978 and then having a sort of a western music revolution really uh, provided a, a different maybe not different but it, it's interesting to watch how that this like continuum of jazz music came up in, in China after 1978. How do you think it changed the way that they dealt with the music to have been cut off for 30 years? 
Oh, and let's be honest, like, before 49, there was Civil War, there was World, like, people weren't listening to jazz, like, regular people may not be listening to jazz. Well, actually, that. interesting, you know? uh, there's, in, so, like, in the 1930s and the 20s, Buck Clayton, who was Duke Ellington's trumpet player, mm. uh, came to, sh- was in Shanghai for, oh, really? you know, like, a 10-year stint or Oh, 10 years. years? Yeah, he was, wow. he was there for quite a while because, um, you know, they basically decided to leave America because they wanted to get out of... The yeah. segregation and all this stuff. They came to China <clears throat> and they had this gig at the Canadrome Ballroom in Shanghai uh, in, the t- in the late late 20s, early 30s, mm. right You know, before the Japanese invasion. And Buck Clayton ended up working with this uh, Shanghainese playwright, Li Jinghui. Mm. And they together basically created the music that was like the foundation of modern mando pop oh really oh and and essentially what buck clayton did was he he listened to like the folk melodies from you know what people were listening to he said oh we can put this on a blue scale yeah we can do this and so a lot of that that like yeah shanghai yeah those yeah yeah it's like a very jazz bar-y you know sort of old posters and the cigarette box you know t-paul on the on the poster a lot of that music was like a collaboration between like buck clayton and Legion so really like the chinese modern chinese mandopop does have black music to thank as well that's crazy i mean this is this was like one of the things i remember that always struck me when i was in the early days of the chinese comedy scene it was like it really felt like I was like one of those people in some way, like, yeah. you know, there was, or improv even more so because improv was even smaller, but right. there was like, you will, sometimes I would like do an improv workshop. I wouldn't think about it. And then five years later, I would find out like the first person who started an improv troupe in whatever Changsha <laughs> had taken this workshop. And like, that was the thing that got it going. And I never even knew. Yeah. And so it was, it was fun to be part of an art scene where that was happening. Yeah. And to some degree, even like it's it's a weird thing to say, but like I almost feel like we're there with T YouTube as well. Mm. You know, like like there's not a lot of T YouTube stuff. You know, whatever there is in ten years, like you know, it's possible that the people who are making T YouTube things in the future are going to be watching this episode. So yeah. it's um there's something fun about being way up at the start of those of those art forms. Did you feel that as well with some of the with some of the jazz in Beijing? Or was it pretty well established by the time you got there? By the time I got there, there were a couple of musicians who were like pretty, I mean, yeah, well established, meaning there was, there were venues for it and there were people playing and there's like clearly a, a group of audience members who were already listening. Um, the guys who like got in early, I think are like, Shadja, <clears throat> like Bebe, there's a group mm-hmm. of musicians who basically, you know, after they graduated from the Central Conservatory or whatever, they they decided they wanted to study jazz. And so they were like trading cassette tapes and bootleg tapes. Cause at the time those music were still not yeah. allowed. So, you know, those guys were like, I would consider them like the progenitors mm-hmm. and who we are, you know, um, yeah, there's some of, some of these guys who are like revered kind of godfathers mm-hmm. of, of the scene around the same time. Sui Jin was like kind of yeah, yeah. his name. So Liu and Sui Jin are like, you know, Luyard plays mm. in Sweden's band. They were together for a long time, and Luyard now opened, uh, I mean, opened yeah. East Shore. Mm. That's his. Oh, that's, that's his, his place. Okay. Yeah. So a lot of times you'll see Sweden in there at night. That's cool. Hanging out, and you know, I know yeah. him, yeah. you know, auxiliary, in an auxiliary way that like we, we hang out sometimes. That's when great. I, when I'm in there, like, 
Um, he really loves jazz music. He loves trumpet. And he loves hearing all that stuff. And though you are, is like a major patron of the scene. Wow. So uh, that's really cool. Yeah, he sure has been a real staple of of, of the Chinese jazz scene mm. uh, for a long time. That's really cool. So. Uh, we're going to take a little bit of a break here. We're going to talk a little bit more about the pop music, about doing some big shows. Um, I just like, I just really loved hanging out with you and all those jazz shows. So I wanted to get back into jazz. I know you haven't been doing as many yeah. jazz shows, but yeah, it comes back, man. It all has a way of cycling around. I really do think so. So um, anyway, I'm Jesse. I'm Terry. And we'll be right back in a moment. Hey there, I'm from one of those online mattress companies. Apparently, people who listen to podcasts have an insatiable desire for mattresses, like can't get enough, fairy tale shit, or something like that. The problem with most mattresses, though, is they make lousy tea. Just ask this guy who's not a paid shill. Well, I, I tried drinking my mattress, and it was pretty bad. I mean, first, I just put my lips on it and started sucking, but that didn't really work. Uh, then I poured hot water on it, but uh, that just made it wet and hot. Also, my girlfriend was like, it's 4 a.m., what are you doing? <laughs> She's always like that. <laughs> the problem would be solved if instead of a mattress, you were drinking Jesse's Teahouse Teas. Jesse gets teas straight from small tea shops and tea farmers in China and puts them into his subscription service. Just use the code JESSEPOD for $10 off your first order of $30 and stop trying to drink your mattress. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Tea Time with Jesse. I'm Jesse, and uh, I'm here with Terry Shea. A uh, musician, good friend of mine from the Beijing days um, uh, of the Beijing jazz scene and now in the sort of like greater China pop scene, uh, I guess you'd say. So um, I want to talk a little bit more about pop music. We actually had a friend of mine, uh, John Schmidt. I don't know if you know John Schmidt. He studied at CET with me way back in the uh, day and he does pop music in Hollywood. So we've actually had a pop music person on the podcast. Although I don't know if that's aired yet by the time we've done this out. But the, I, I always am interested in pop music, though, because... It, it really it really speaks to me in a way of trying to do pop music from another culture. In some way, you need to really radically change your idea about, like, what's what's popular, you know? <laughs> and what's good. And what's good. Yeah. And so I guess that's the first question is, what is Chinese pop music like or Mandarin pop music like for people that have maybe never listened to it? Well, man, trying to compare it to American music, it's like, yeah, it's like apples and oranges. You, mm. you have... Uh, like a, a a set of songs. I mean, what so what is pop music? It's like on one hand you can think of it as like a group of songs or uh, melodies with lyrics uh, and lyrics, you know, that are common to like an over an entire culture, meaning that everybody kind of knows. Yeah. When you when you sing about X, people know what you're talking yeah. about. And they're usually attached to a certain group of people. So, mm. you know, you've got Jay Chow. Yeah. You know, you've got J.J. Lin. You've got David Tao. You've got, you know, you've got uh, Amei. You have, you know, Sun Nan. You have, you know, like, all these different artists. And they, you know, so that's kind of what, what, what popular music is. Is the, the, the it's group right. of works yeah. that, you know, they, they create or that the industry creates for them and then that people just commonly know yeah. those. And nowadays, so. it's like, it's not even just the music, it's like, it's the <laughs> concerts, it's the TV shows, it's yeah. like all that sort of stuff together. Totally. So the, um, and so when you first got into pop, you originally, as you said, you were playing in the in the back of shows yeah. and in, in concerts. And what was that like to be in like a big arena, you know, playing for whatever, 10,000 people or something like that? 
Yeah, the fr- I mean, the first shows I did were just like TV shows, so they were, I, it was just me staring at a camera, mm. you know, but that's almost in a way, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a terror that comes with being, we call it studio fright, you know, mm. where you're, you're staring at a microphone and then you start to have all those like artistic doubts. You get the yips. Exactly. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, the, uh, exactly. When yeah. that microphone is in front of you at the very beginning, when you're in, when you are a inexperienced session musician you know, just kind of coming up, you start to have a lot of, like, fear of, you know, performance anxiety mm. issues coming up. And the same thing with the camera, and the same thing with, you know, a, a bunch of people sitting in front of you. So, but what I did uh, at the beginning was play on a lot of these TV shows, thank you. Um, and I was hired uh, to be in, on a lot of these singing competition shows in the, in the backing pit. So I was a good lot of these uh you know, these these shows. Um and so that's what I was primarily doing was just playing trombone um in the backing band. And I did that for, you know, transitioning out of being a jazz musician to doing to that started as early as twenty fourteen for me. And um, I think there was a point where I kind of decided to be a pop musician with a side jazz career rather than being a jazz musician with a side pop career. Mm. Um, and I think that was around 2016 or 2017. Mm. And uh, that, from that, there have been a couple of big career changes that have happened during my I'm in the industry that have sort of pushed me towards being a producer, you know, an arranger. Um, and we can talk about some of those. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so this is the thing, and you've done the production and arranging for your own stuff as well as for, like, shows and stuff like that. Yeah. We have, actually, the the uh, vinyl that you gave me. Hey, Lao Shui, can you bang on the vinyl? Chinese how to say? Hei Jiao. Hei Jiao. Oh, this is good. Hei Jiao. Hei Jiao. Hei Jiao. Very cool. There we go. So this is the um, the Adventures of Pie Boy. Yeah. Very, very cool. So tell us about how did this happen? So during COVID, um, yeah, you, this is uh, <laughs> hilarious. I love the art. <laughs> yeah. Um, during COVID, so basically what happened, how I ended up in Taipei was I got stuck here. I was playing uh, a show at Xiaojudan, Taipei mm. Arena, mm. Um, with a singer named, a Taiwanese singer named Ali. Mm. And um, we were, I, I had gone home, like you, for yeah. Chinese New Year. Yeah. And I, I, we weren't sure whether the show was going to happen. So I was originally supposed to fly back to Beijing to pick up some more equipment and then come back to Taipei. Mm. Uh, this was January, February, February, yeah, February 7th, 8th mm. of 2020. And I decided it's funny, I, we still remember the exact dates of these things. I, I left know. on the 23rd of January. and the like, 21st of January. Oh, God. Yeah. It was all. It was all. It's all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's all. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so you were you were playing and going back, and then obviously it didn't happen. It didn't, yeah. And then after the shows, we I ended up changing my ticket to come straight to Taipei from the States. And a couple of other things happened. Like, you know, a couple guys were leaving from Hong Kong, and... They got on their flight, and as their plane was taking off, like they shut Hong Kong airport down. So, like somehow, our like eighteen piece band all ended up in Taipei together. Oh, but, lucky! But by 
But like the parents, they hadn't been on the plane when it happened, you know? Exactly. (laughs) Wow. So, um, yeah, so I ended up in Taipei and I couldn't go back to Beijing because as soon as the shows were over, I think around mid-March, they, Hmm. they, uh, yeah, it was, it was shut, shut, shut down the border. Right. Yeah. Um, and so for the next three years, you know, I, two and a half years, I was in Taiwan. Mm. I thought about going back to the States and I thought to myself, like, well, you know, if I go back home, the most I can do is just sit around, you know, just wait for things to come back. I did that. (laughs) (laughs) I made a lot of online comedy, you know. It was not wasted, right? It was not wasted, but it was definitely, it felt like sitting around waiting for things to open up. And, and, you know, it's, it's absurd to think about, but it felt like that. In, from the entire time between when everything shut down until I got the vaccine. Yeah. And that was, you know, whatever, 12 months, 13 yeah. months, 15 months. Because we had, for the people that came from Asia, we had two extra months of COVID craziness where everything shut down in America in March. Our lives were already destroyed for like right. five, six weeks. So it was um, it was crazy. So, so you found yourself here in, in Taipei and you yeah. were like, well, I can't, I, I don't know exactly what I'd do if I go back. So I guess you're like, see what you can do here. Yeah. So I, I just started um, writing music, you know, a Spice Cabinet, the band that did this album, um, the Spice Cabinet. Um, we had a previous album and that album was more based on what we normally play the bar. Uh, we had this gig, this monthly residency at Modernista, as mm-hmm. you remember. And Modernista, we just play like pop covers. Yeah. We do a lot of like uh, top 40 yeah. music and make it kind of bounce. I remember the, the, the jazzy version of Call Me Maybe was the, right. was the one That's everybody right. in Beijing knew. <laughs> um, Carly Ray Jepsen, but do it like a jazzy version. Yeah. Right? Uh, so we, so I started working on a new set of music for this band. But the difference was that because the difference being that when you are writing music for a jazz band, a lot of times that you re- really have to rely on the the room, like the, mm. the people playing the music to be together mm. to make the music happen. Mm-hmm. Especially if you're doing a record, yeah, like they have to be in the room together. They have to be playing, you know, you know, yeah, you have to have the energy together. Yeah, communicate, have that synergy, and we half the band was in China. And then half the band was everywhere else because of COVID. So my thought process was, well, actually, I should back up and say my, my, my boss uh, from Karen Mock's band, Arai, Sochiro, Huang Jingxi, he approached me and said that uh, earlier in the year, saying that he was trying to, you know, bundle up a bunch of us jazz musicians together to kind of pitched to uh, to Universal as a as a original content yeah. know, crew for them. So he was kind of helping me to line up getting an album supported by Universal Music. Mm. Um, so you know, I decided to take this opportunity, uh, thanks uh, to to you know this gap in my career to like work on this album and to try and do it, uh, you know, do it justice and do original music. Mm-hmm. But the problem was that the band was split between different places, right? Yeah. Um, and so I really had to like think of a different way. I couldn't just do it purely as a jazz album or like an album that relied on people to like be in the room together to play. And so I started approaching it from a pop music 
mm. perspective, which is you can plan it all out using technology, mm. computers, synthesizers, <clears throat> you know, a click track, yeah. and then you can once you have everything generally planned out in the pop music world, we can just I can send it to LA and have a guy dub yeah. strings, or yeah. I can send it to New York and have a guy play saxes or guitar mm. or something like that. So during this time, a lot of musicians were trying to think about how to like make themselves online available online for yeah. recording. Fortunately, being in the pop industry, I already had myself set up to work on music in this way. Mm-hmm. So basically it became just a matter of like, what is the craziest thing that I can think of and try and plan those ideas within the music itself, but not in a way that, uh, you know, not so rigidly that musicians can't also express themselves over it. So there are certain sections in the album where the music is very rigid. Like you have to play it this way. You mm-hmm. have to exactly cut it off mm-hmm. the way that everybody else does. But then there are sections where I send it to Alex, yeah. the sax player, and say, man, do the weirdest fine. thing you can yeah. come up with. That's fine. Um, and that's... Yeah, yeah, that's that's kind of how it came together. So That's how it came together, and then that kind of leads into one of the big career changes for me, which was in Taiwan, we won the Jinchu Jiao mm. for this album. Mm. Three Jinchu Jiao. Yeah. So, so what is that for people who don't know? It's sort of like Grammys for Chinese language yeah. uh, music and then so that, and that's a big award so like how did that change things for you just like personally in your life i think it 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 put me on the radar as a as a somebody with a concept mm. um, and so artists there were artists who kind of realized that the way that i did things derek and i really yeah because derek is my co-producer mm. um the way that derek and i did things uh really was pretty radically different. It was a little bit more Western. It was a little bit more uncut. Mm. Like we, the way we, the way our album sounds is more aggressive. There are things that are not, uh, that are deliberately left to kind of like really juicy in the mix Mm. um, and oversaturated. Mm. We wanted that sound. And so to have this really aggressive Mm. approach to music was it's not something that a lot of uh, Asian American, or I'm sorry, uh, Chinese pop music yeah. producers and artists are used yeah. to hearing. Do you feel like you have an advantage being a Chinese American doing Mando pop because you have the background in both pop worlds? I don't think it necessarily comes inherent from inherently from being Chinese American. I I was lucky because I had a couple of Asian friends a Taiwanese friend, a Chinese friend, and a Korean friend growing up, mm. and they would give me mixtapes mm. of music from, you know, Taiwan and Korea yeah. and, J- and Japan. And so I, some of the songs that I work, some of the artists that I work with and the songs that they sing, I, I heard as a little, mm. as, a, as, a, as a kid. And so being able to like, you know, reconnect with those and, and having that in my, you know, awareness musical awareness i think was a huge that was a huge advantage mm. to like being in combination with like mm-hmm. a, a, maybe a western music training or being steeped in a western mm. music tradition like jazz yeah. would you recommend like uh for i guess like this is one of the interesting things like you know i'm, I'm jewish but i know nothing about like israeli music like yeah. is it really it wasn't a part of growing up or like there wasn't <laughs> anything like that 
Do you feel like, um, like if there are Chinese Americans that are in the States now that maybe are just like not listening to Mando Pop, like, do you think they should be? Do you think everybody should be listening to Mando Pop? Like, or is it really just like, if it, if you dig it, dig it. If not, whatever, do your thing. Yeah, I mean, I think if people are interested in connecting with their heritage, you know, like a cultural heritage from, from like, if you're Chinese American, you want to connect with being mm. Chinese in mm -hmm. China. Mm. If that's something that interests you, I think it's hugely uh, advantageous to listen to the music mm. and the pop culture, mm. not just the music, pop music, but the pop culture, mm. what movies they like, you know, the, 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 the lingo, yeah. you know, the way that they talk to each other, you know, the, the, just the everyday kind of lingua yeah. franca of, of that yeah. culture if you want to connect with that, I think that's a great way to do that because it shares, you can, from all that pop culture, you can understand their insecurities, yeah. you can understand the things that make them sad, make them happy, you know, and and if you're able to like absorb that, yeah, then I think it will give you a really good yeah. idea like, of what that is like. Because if you're like, if you're like not from America and you're like, what are Americans thinking of? And and Katy Perry asked, do you ever feel like a plastic bag? <laughs> and then they're like, I do. I have felt like a plastic exactly, bag. Right? <laughs> and then you're like, you know, just like, like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that's a, that's a lyric that would only be in a pop song. Right. Right. Oh, you know, like that's what pop is there for. Well, maybe T.S. Eliot. Maybe, yeah. That's, that's yeah. That, it could or, totally be yeah. You have to go one way or the other. This is like, or E.E. E. Cummings or whatever. <laughs> yeah, Has anyone ever done E.E. E. Cummings pop music? I'm sure it's yeah, that would be a that would be a thing. We gotta we gotta get possible. you on that if next album. Um, <laughs> but um get me with that No, but I, I think it's so it's so true because like a lot of people I think try to like bull rush their way into learning a language and a culture by doing language, 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 language. And it was like one of the things that I always recommended to people like to learn Chinese was like find something you actually like doing outside of language and do that in the other language. Absolutely. So, like, I would watch um, NBA games, and then I would, um, I would like, be watching NBA games in Chinese right. and then try to figure out what, what was right. going on. Right. And then it did feel like work because I was just doing basketball, but um, that's the way it was. Yeah. So, like, for basketball, like, it didn't feel like work to be watching an NBA game. And similarly with, like, you know, watching movies, you know, listening to music, like... You know, you don't need to be listening to obscure music like right. listen to what's popular. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny. Like, you brought up NBA. Uh, when I got to Taiwan, I, you know, being a, reading Jian Ti Zi in, oh, yeah. in Chinese, and I had to figure out Fan Ti Zi in yeah, yeah, Taiwan. Yeah. So, what, hap what happened was I, um, at the time, the Final Fantasy VII remake game mm -hmm. had just come out, and I desperately wanted to play it. So I, I went and bought a used PS4 from some guy on Craigslist or Facebook mm -hmm. Market. And then I bought a copy of Final Fantasy VII from one of the stores behind Guanghua mm -hmm. uh, in, in Taipei, mm -hmm. the, the, the computer market. And then I popped it in, and then I realized all the menus are in fan Oh, so, so you got, now you got it. And I was like, you know what? There's no way I'm going to spend $60 to buy another copy of this game yeah. in English. No. I'm just going to learn it. It's so funny. It's like a lot of things with language are like that. Like you want to do something that's actually very simple. Like sometimes people are like, I really want to get into tea, but I don't speak Mandarin. I'm like, you should learn. And on one hand, it sounds ridiculous to say you should learn a language just to be able to drink better tea. On the other hand, that's the only way anyone ever learns anything. It's like, I have something I want to do. 
and I can't do it unless I learn the thing. I mean, so many people like listen to learn Japanese so that they can watch anime. Yeah. Or learn Korean so they can watch K dramas. Yeah. You know, and so, and and you know, I think that is a totally valid and useful. I mean, because in the end, language is is. You have to use it. Yeah, it has to be useful in yeah. order for you to maintain. Yeah, to use it. Right? It's, so. it's a tool, and you need to you need to want to build something with it, or else like, what's the point of having all these tools? Yeah, exactly. then you just forget it, right? Yeah, if, like my Spanish, I haven't used in years. Yeah. Como te llamas? Donde está el biblioteca? We're gonna get into Spanish. I I keep asking, and no one's been able to tell me where the library is. Like everybody's just like, gives me the stink eye and walks away. That being said, I've been doing this in China. So <laughs> did I ever tell you the story of the time I met a Spanish guy hiking in China? I met a Spanish guy hiking on Lumeshan, and I was like, oh, I haven't had a chance to use my Spanish in forever. So I walked out, and I was like, I'm going to try to do this. And so I asked him, I was like, oh, oh I, no, I wish. <laughs> I should have asked him. He's like, down. <laughs> but no, I asked him, I was like, oh, has visitado Chungwa <laughs> and he looked at me like I was nuts and I was like I didn't even stutter I thought that came out clean yeah. like you know yeah. and he looked at me like I was crazy and later I was like oh oh <laughs> yeah, I've, I've done that too with Spanish and Chinese they, they weirdly like they mix up all together so now whenever I try to speak Spanish it's not often I have to tell myself to speak English in Spanish right I'm like just speak English but use all the wrong words right but, and that's close, I'll still make mistakes, but it's closer than Chinese where like the grammar and the, the mentality is like completely different. Like, so, so anyway, so get back to the pop world. So now you perform and you produce and you have a story of a, uh, of like a Mando pop musician that you really like that you've gotten the chance to work with and what it's actually like working with them. So currently I'm, I'm playing a lot with, um, David Tao, Tojo, mm. Mm. and uh, he's about to go back on tour mm. in a couple of weeks, a couple of months. So I think in, in, in March we're going to start again. And he's been kind of out of the circuit for a little while. Mm. Um, but uh, DT, as we call him, yeah. his story is really interesting too because he's also like Taiwanese-American. Mm. And he's one of the, you know, you could say progenitors of, yeah. of the modern Chinese pop music. Like mm -hmm. in the 90s, he really, he predates Jay Chow and, and JJ Lin and... Mm. Uh, well, Leo, you mm. know, all these guys and his music when you when you talk to him about it I mean the guy is like a walking encyclopedia of music from the 70s and mm. 80s so he's like a Beatles nut and mm. coincidentally I'm also a Beatles nut mm. because my dad loves the Beatles mm. and so I grew up always listening to the Beatles um, so working with him has been really fantastic because I get to see just how much actual blend of music that he has taken from the West and and from China together mm. to make the songs that are like classically known as you know, I, I have so many friends. If you were a nineties kid in China, mm -hmm. you grew up listening to David Tao. Yeah. And to realize how many of those songs were actually, you know, amalgamations of he, he put like all the these Beatles. references. Yeah, like you know yeah. Like he there's all these Beatles references in the song that are like tucked away in the back. Mm. Um and people you know, you it's, would never know that if you didn't like, kind of, have the stems to listen to. It's kind of like really encouraging from a cultural perspective because like yeah. you think like Mando Pop, like a lot of times you think, oh, it's in Mandarin. That's them doing them or right. something like that. But right. actually, if you look into it at that deeper level, 
Yeah. You know, music is music. So like the people who are on the forefront of music are never like locked in a room somewhere not listening to music, right? right? You know, right. so it's all going to kind of come together. And in, in many ways, it's like the best of everything that it can be very uniquely Chinese and different, but also it's not like coming from a different world. Right. You know, I mean, in the end, like the soup, the, I think the differences in between music, you know, in the West and music in the East, like you could say on one hand that there's superficial differences, like, oh, they use different chords, they use different ideas, the lyrics are clearly different, mm. the cadence which they sing is totally different. But I think what the universal factor is, is just, you know, it's, it, it, it's like a deeply cultural, you know, there are a lot of similar musical parts that go into Chinese pop music and American pop music. And, you know, it just happens to be arranged in a different order mm. that maybe doesn't quite you know, click with Americans the same way that it clicks with a Chinese person mm-hmm. or, or, you know, yeah. you know like Katy, Katy Perry is not going to click with a Chinese person the same way yeah. that it's going to click with. But do, do you feel like out of, let's say, a hundred friends you know in China, how many of them do you think have felt like a plastic bag? before i think almost I think everybody, everybody has, everybody has yeah, yeah. you know so it's like so it's all there really if you think about it including kim jong it's we're referencing that that's, yeah so the um, but anyway so um so what is it like working with these like big pop stars in person like what are like you know what is it like working in person is it like is everybody in the team like oh big big guy or is it more like this guy's just an artist, but then when he goes to the show, it's a bigger show. What I like about DT is that he is really like no nonsense. For him, if you're if you're working for him, he really like treats you like a like a, like a colleague, mm. um, and and I think that really stems from his like respect of musicians, mm. um, and he he really does feel that he wants to be like one of the guys, mm. one of the guys being the guys in the band, yeah, um, and. I really, that's a really awesome environment to be in when the artist like really has like a, you know, a deep respect for, for the musicians and the mm-hmm. craft that they're doing. It's not always the case that, you know, different artists are like maybe more, you know, sort of part of... Everybody's their own way of doing it. Yeah. And some artists are more or less in control. Mm-hmm. DD happens to be one of those guys who's is wants more control of, mm-hmm. of the music and I love that um, but uh, you know you have other artists in, in China who have you know who, who maybe want to see more control of the music to their producer mm-hmm. or to their manager or you know, something like that I guess everybody's in it for a different reason like some some comedians want to like you know well, a comedian is a little bit different, but it's like some people like, you know, some people want to be involved in, or even for the tea. Like I want to be picking the tea. There's no point in running a tea company right. and having somebody else pick the tea. Like right. it's so hard to run yeah. a tea company and I like doing it. <clears throat> so like, but there are other companies that I know that have started tea companies. I met people who went to uh, Harvard business school and they started a tea company and they'll taste the tea and give their opinion, but right. they're not there to find the tea, right. yeah. you know? But then again, like, I am, I have done enough graphic design to recognize I'm bad at graphic design. And so we have home home, Claire, she does our packaging. I give my opinions, but like, 
I'm not coming up with this boo like out of my head. And so I'm happy to seed that off. Whereas like somebody else might be getting into a whole business and making a product just because they want to do the design. And so it's, um, I think like, would you say like for yourself, what are the things that you have to be working on in a musical project or else you're not in like, it's not a personal project. And what are the things you're like, yeah, I'll give that to somebody else. You know, for me, I think, what I, if somebody's gonna hire me to be a producer on their team, that I want, I want at least the, I wanna be to feel that my, that what I'm bringing to the project is valued. Mm -hmm. You know, that my musical experience, my communication skills, um, you know, the things that, the input that I have to give on how we're gonna AR this thing out or yeah. how we're gonna make this, you know, project work for the artist is being valued by the artist and by their team mm. uh, and i think you know everybody wants to be valued when it comes down to like their input on, on a project but as a producer it's very difficult to do to do a project if you don't have that trust from the artist yeah um because a lot of people ask like what do producers do mm. and you know it's it's like you're sort of a you're sort of like a, a coordinator, right? You're mm. like when you are a producer as a music, your musical talents are actually taken for granted, mm. right? Like your vision is so much more than just what the music does. Of course, as a producer, you're also expected to be able to communicate with the people, the session guys, like how they're supposed to play yeah. this thing, how, you know, translate what the artist feels into specific musical yeah, like you'd be actually able to tell people what to do. Yeah, tell people like, what to do because the artist may come up with something to you and say, like, "Oh, I want this song to feel more yellow." Yeah, more, <laughs> you know, I want, I want, you know, I want a clear-headed. Yeah, you know, do you I remember? Want to, I want it to shine. You know? Can you think of like the weirdest note you've been giving while you're producing stuff that you've had to try to communicate to people? Yeah, I, I've gotten shiny a lot. You get shiny. shiny a lot, and they're like, "I want to go liang, like yeah, liang jing jing," you know, like. Liang. Like I, I want something shiny and more, you know, dan or something mm, like that. Yeah. You know, some maybe maybe something pure like that. Simple, pure and yeah. simple. And actually, pure and simple is pretty easy to work with. But yeah. like, like if they give something really abstract, like you know, what what did they say to me once? Something like. One artist told me, give that note to people? Like, what do you do with that? So for me, I interpreted that to be like, I want something nostalgic. Mm. I want something, I want it to make me feel like I have, like... Almost bringing back to the time in your life where you actually did that. Because yeah. now you're probably not out every day yeah. drinking until three, but but you remember what it was like when you yeah. did that. and like this evergreen, that's really what mm. I feel like, evergreen. So, you know, for me, there were some specific elements that I side that I was going to put like musically what were the elements you put in there was a chorus guitar like an arpeggiated chorus guitar like you know like then you have underneath you know I I don't have my laptop yeah, yeah. I can't show you exactly but there was like a 
kind of like a really ringing 80s kind of chorus guitar that I put under, you know, beneath mm. and uh, another layer of guitar with distortion. And then I put, um, uh, there's a synth we call the Juno. Mm. There's a pad that, that's like a very reminiscent of maybe like the Stranger Things kind mm -hmm, of yeah. sound. And, um, so I, I had something going under there and uh, yeah I think you know it, it's always like a a gradient in terms of whether how much it worked or how much it didn't work mm. and you will always be tweaking things a little bit more but you know that's cool generally speaking I think that sort of fell in the direction yeah. that they were like looking for I love it. That's great, man. Well, <laughs> we're almost out of time, unfortunately, but before we go, I want to do a lightning round, just some quick, uh, quick uh, discussions. And then also, what did you think about the tea? It's great. Is it good? Um, I, it really got deeper as we continued, as you continue to steep it. Mm -hmm. um, the first pour was like this really like fruity wash. Mm -hmm. And now we're kind of in this like heavier, mm -hmm. but more, more like back of the mouth yeah. kind of. It's good. The good teas, that's part of the thing. It's like every every tea is kind of like it does a progression. This yeah. is like, you know, you can just throw it in a mug and it'll be good. Right. But if you have the time to sit down and really take your time through it and be able to to taste all that. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's perfect why I invite people over to talk. Because, <laughs> like, you know, you can do it by yourself. But if you have somebody over to talk, you're kind of going through this together without right. even thinking about it. So totally. that's great to hear. So lightning round, the way this works is um, I'm going to ask you some questions you know, one sentence maximum, we'll say, or something like that, you know, quick, okay? So, uh, what was your uh, favorite show you've ever done? It's a show called Shi Guang Yuehui, mm. which was run by my boss, Wang mm. Jingxi, mm. and the arrangements were so much fun to arrange on That's cool. Um, what's your favorite instrument to play? <sighs> I enjoy the trumpet. Playing trumpet a lot, flugelhorn, but flugelhorn. Oh, nice. Um, what is the uh, what is your piece of advice for young people that want to get into music? Um, this is funny. I think that there are a lot of people out there peddling good advice, and I think in the end, you know, don't listen to any of them. Whoa. The main thing is like, if Whoa. you you need to have your, if you want to be. A musician, and this includes what I'm saying, that if you want to be a successful musician, whatever that means to you, you need to have a clear enough vision about what it is that you want to be and what you want to do. Uh, that needs to be so clear that like nobody can stop you. Nice, awesome. Well, that was a great time uh, being able to have tea with you and catch up with you here in Taipei, yeah, and it's been it's been super fun. Uh, where can people find you? I'm on Instagram. Uh, I'll share my Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> you like doing it right? Like, yeah. yeah. Uh, I have a couple different Instagram pages and I'm on TikTok and Douyin as well. Nice. Awesome. Very cool, man. So it's it's been great and we'll I'll be seeing you hopefully. We're maybe going to do like a little whiskey tour around here in Taiwan before I head out. That would yeah. be a lot of fun. So get some food too. Yeah. Man. Awesome. <laughs> All right. Have a good one, guys. See you around. Yeah. I've been Jesse. And um, by the way, if you're new to the show and you don't know, all the tea that we're drinking, the Taiwan box, that's gonna be up for order by the time that this comes out. Uh, go and check out the uh, Taiwan Oolong box. I've found a lot of really great teas here. 
And also, uh, all of the tea equipment that you see here is on the website. All of our stuff is in New Jersey, so if you buy it, it's being shipped from there. If you're in the US or anywhere near there, it's gonna be coming pretty fast. So you're not gonna have to wait six weeks for stuff to come from China. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's all good. It's all good. So <laughs> I, yeah, people are like, which tea is good? They're all good. By the time it gets through the whole system, there's nothing, there's no junkers on there. So very, very good. I'll, I'll see you guys around. I've been Jesse. Thanks for watching Tea Time with Jesse. Thank you. Bye bye. Thank you.